Welcome to the Sisters Community Church Podcast. How well do we care for the people around us? Are we thankful for those that God has put into our life? Well, in today's series, we have team teaching from Pastor Ryan Moffitt and Jonathan Martin as they continue our sermon series, Praying with Paul. Let's listen. Hey, so glad you're here this morning and uh, good job on Daylight Savings. You all did a lot better then uh, this guy, because uh, should we tell him what happened this morning? Well, I was just at home having a cup of coffee, and I get a call. Dude, you coming? And I go, what time, what, what time was the call? 9.29. Exactly. <laughs> I was thinking this is going to be an interesting uh, interview. It is, it is. Hey, Ryan, I've got a question for you, Ryan. Oh, yeah, uh, right. yeah. Anyway. So anyway, I was, I was here pretty quickly. Yeah, good so, job. Um, yeah. So uh, really glad you you're here. I'm really glad you're here. Yeah, yeah, um, so, what we're doing as a church is we're diving into the New Testament and we're looking at the prayers of Paul. And we're doing this intentionally as a church, gearing up for our Easter Holy Week that's coming. So let me just give you a little, a little bit of vision casting on, on what the next month looks like. As we continue looking at these prayers every week, we want to climax our Steady, not by just learning something, but by engaging in something. And so April 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, which is Monday through Friday, as a church, we're going to have a week of prayer. It's Holy Week. I can't think of a better use of Holy Week than to actually not talk about prayer, but to participate in prayer. So here's my plea, and you're going to hear this a lot the next month. Pick an hour to come and pray with believers in the church. We're going to meet Monday through Friday, 6 a.m., 6 p.m. at the fireside room. Our ministry team, our elder team, our pastoral team, we're preparing a time. Because, friends, how many of you are facing something in your life that you are powerless to change? Anybody out there? Can I get a witness? Anyone parenting? Come pray. Prayer is a glad submission of total dependence on God. And what we don't want to do is talk about how great prayer is. We want to actually steward the church so that we experience it. And then we'll come into that good Friday evening. So Friday, we'll only have one prayer meeting, 6 a.m. And then we'll gather here on good Friday, 6 p.m. for a good Friday gathering and then Sunday morning on Easter Sunday. Now, let me make one plea for Easter Sunday. Uh, You can see the room's pretty full. We're also gonna have a lot of guests that day. The fireside room is gonna be set up with 150 chairs. So if you're willing to, as a member of this church, create a hospitable spot for somebody else, please be in the fireside room on Easter. That way we can really facilitate our guests, okay? Sound good? All right. As we gather and look at God's word this morning, I wanna start with a question. And the question that I wanna ask you and ask us is, what is it that you intuitively, without effort, kind of at the primal source of who you are, what is it that you pray about most? Not what should, I pray about most, 
But what do you actually find yourself praying about consistently, primally, intuitively, naturally? Now, I asked that question because this morning, what Jonathan and I are going to do is we're going to look at actually Paul's most repeated prayer in the New Testament. Now, what do you guys think it might be? If we, if we were, Jonathan, if we were just to ask the question without looking at the scriptures, what would be our natural inclination of what do you think Paul's praying about most? He would be praying that God would solve the problems in the church. Totally, yeah. Or maybe good health? Probably good health. Um, you know, honestly, yeah, good health, that things would be going well, that things would be, if, he's, if he was an American, that things would, everybody would be happy. Oh, uh-huh. yeah, that's uh-huh. convicting. Sure. That would be um, Easy. definitely what he would be praying. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think that what, what surprises me about Paul is he always does the unexpected. It's not what we would naturally gravitate toward. And yet Paul is doing it, and he's doing it as though it's natural for him. And that's what we're going to take on today. We're going to see something that Paul does seemingly naturally, but I don't believe it is naturally. I think God infused it in his life. I think God built it in his life. I think God formed it in his life as he walked with him. So the thing that Paul prays for, my study said 9.7 times. There's one where, eh, I'm not sure. Someone, some theologians say 10, some said 9. A couple really, really... Uh, you know, particular guy said eight. So we're going to go 9.7 times in the New Testament. Paul prays, and he starts his prayer with these words, I thank my God for you. Paul's prayer, his foundational starting point for prayer was what I call relational gratitude. Wow. He was joyful for the people he got to serve. And so when you think about that starting point for Paul, Jonathan, what, what comes to your mind? I mean, you're a Paul scholar, you're a Paul guy. What, where did this come from for him? You know, it's interesting because the earliest letter he wrote, okay, is Galatians. And it's the one book where it's, quite frankly, sort of conspicuously absent. It was clear that he loved the Galatians because what he was saying is what they needed to hear. But he didn't start it off saying, I thank God for you. In fact, it's basically almost like, who bewitched you? Where did, what happened to you? I think he starts with, you foolish Galatians. Yeah, it is. It's pretty... A little less gracious. gracious. And, and, you know, and Paul was like all of us. So that was the earliest letter that we have that that he wrote. Um, But as he goes on, there's this... Paul was like all of us. He grew in his faith. He grew in his knowledge of God. He grew in his knowledge of, of people and understanding. And something happened to him where he started to, to not see people as he did in his former ways. I mean, how do we know before he came to Christ, he saw especially Christians as obstacles in his way. And in some ways, the Galatians were getting in the way of the spiritual growth that he wanted to see happen. So he went after them right away. But the Corinthians were really messed up. And yet at the same time, he starts and and he just starts, he gives thanks for them. And so there's something that God does in his life that makes him a grateful person. 
that God wants to do in all of our lives. He wants to take us from these angry, bitter, complaining, um, you're the fault type of people to these people who are genuinely grateful. And God did that for Paul. He took him from a hater of Christians to a, not just a tolerator, but to a lover of, and then one who's grateful for yeah. in everything he says. And it's not like he was being commanded to do so. So God, the Holy Spirit, was doing something in Paul's life because he experienced all kinds of blows. He could have focused on the negative, and yet he chose to start off and give thanks. That's right. And sometimes Paul gets this bad rap. I've even heard Christians say, man, I really love Jesus, but Paul's kind of a jerk. And uh, that's one way to read Paul. I would say that's a very uncharitable way to read Paul because here's a guy, if you read his sufferings in, in what is it, 1 Corinthians 11 or 2 Corinthians 11, where he says, I was shipwrecked, I was beaten. And then at the end of that whole list, he says, plus I carry the daily pressures of the church. And so this guy was giving his life for the gospel. He was relationally vulnerable. Mm -hmm. More than a handful of times, Paul was actually deserted. I think of Demas, who, whom I love, who fell in love with this world, and he deserted me. Alexander the coppersmith, he did me much harm. Here's a guy who had been relationally uh, wronged, mm -hmm. and Paul's life got sweeter. And so as I'm thinking through this this week, I'm asking the question, there's two fundamental ways we approach people. One is we see people as image bearers to love and serve, or we see them as obstacles to pawn so I can get what I want. And uh, Jonathan, you've done some really good work on this for, through a servant leadership paradigm. And you've talked about this metaphor of the tree versus the pyramid. Would you explain what that is and how Paul thought about people? Well, before we get there, I know you had the, you had the illustration in here of, of Bobby Knight. Oh, Bobby Knight. Yeah. yeah. So tell us, tell us, because I think some people, have, has anybody seen that special on ESPN on Bobby Knight's life? Does anyone watch 30 for 30? Okay. A couple, well, like couple of you are saved out here. Yeah, okay, good. Um, so, but, but tell, yeah. tell what Bobby Knight achieved. He achieved some incredible things. Yeah, I, I love ESPN documentaries. That's my idea of a good time, okay? And Bobby Knight was a a legendary basketball coach. And Bobby Knight grew up in a home where his grandma was angry, yelling at him all the time as a child. And his dad wasn't necessarily abusive or emotionally abusive, but he was, Bobby Knight would say, my dad was absent. He can't remember how many times his dad really talked to him, gave him instruction, or told him the words, I love you. So Bobby Knight's life his trajectory was a reaction to being vulnerable emotionally and relationally not connected. So Bobby Knight achieves all this greatness, okay? And he does it at the great cost of young men's lives. So at a key moment in his coaching career, Neil Reed, who's this high-end recruit that comes to Indiana, a young kid, 18, 19 years old, Bobby Knight's not getting what he wants during practice, and he grabs Neil Reed, and he chokes him. And it goes viral, and it's this big scandal. Bobby Knight's throwing chairs onto the court. He's breaking clipboards, screaming, tirades. And at the end of the scene, 
of this documentary, Bobby Knight is holding his hands up like this as an old man, as he's getting his record, I think it's like 760 some wins, he's breaking all the records, he's did it, and, and, and the, the commentator says underneath as he's got his hands up, Bobby Knight achieved great success, but at what cost? Wow. So there's one way to see people. Neil Reed, you're here to serve me. But there's another way. And I was thinking about Bobby Knight and I was thinking about Paul and I was thinking these two guys absolutely saw people two opposite ways. And so let's talk about the pyramid and the tree and thanks for reminding me about my yeah, love of sports documentaries. I appreciate that. Well, one of the things about Bobby Knight, too, you couldn't touch him. In the state of Indiana, he was the king. He was the president. And if anybody said anything negative about him, boy, you got killed. You got massacred. Because he was so gifted and he was so successful. And that's what tends to happen when we have really successful people is what happens is where do they end up? On top. And literally on top of a, of a pyramid. And one of the things we we talk about when we go around the world and talk about servant leadership was we show two contrasting um, systems. And one is built by the Pharaoh. And what did the Pharaoh build? Pyramids. And quite frankly, he was genius at it. You know there's some 70 ton stones in the middle of that thing, you know, 200 feet up, right in the middle of that thing. How do you get 70 tons up there? I mean, nobody knows. But anyway, the Pharaoh built some incredible things, but again, like you said, at what cost? At an incredible cost, slave labor. Ask yourself this question, how many families were destroyed by the Pharaoh building a tomb for himself? Now, now think about that. They're literally building a place to house a dead person. That is powerful to think about. Yeah, as a, as it, it, a, it is. And so building this tomb for an egomaniac, and, and it's all about the Pharaoh because it's all about him and his afterlife. And it's not just about his afterlife. It's about building a monument for himself for the next 4,000 years. It's the only structure of the ancient wonders of the world that's still standing. So he was incredibly successful, wasn't he? At what? Building monuments or destroying lives? And the answer is yes. Both. And so what we see is this, this pyramid, and what happens is it's, it's a system in which it uses people to keep the structure going. And churches can end up that way. See, what happens is they start you know, wanting to see people developed, and it, but soon it becomes big, and it's, we start having to manage it, and then we need a, a strong, centralized leadership, and then boom, suddenly, instead of the structure serving the people and launching them all into ministry, we, it, it inverts and the people start serving the structure. How many of you have been in a job where you felt like you were serving the structure and you really felt like you were being used? Okay, raise your hand, just curious. Okay, just all of you, that's all. Okay, so, um, so essentially, a few more than watch the Bobby Knight. Um, all of us know what it feels like to be used. Now, in contrast to this pyramid, if you invert a pyramid and you start small at the bottom and get big at the top, you get this thing called a tree. Now, the pyramid is man-made. It's dead. It's lifeless. It's standing in the desert. 
A tree is life-giving. I mean, if you think about all the things of trees, we, we ask people, okay, wh what do you know about a tree? Well, it takes in our junk, our carbon dioxide, and turns it back into oxygen. It, it can take the sunlight and turn it into energy. Trees are miraculous in every way. And not only do they grow small at the bottom, they start it from a single seed and they grow up and they divide into two, four, six, eight, and then literally there are millions of leaves all at the end of these branches. So it keeps pushing up and out and then it produces fruit. Not only does it give us wood for our homes and wood shade for the animals and shade for us and food for the animals, it gives us fruit and then it reproduces the pyramids are lifeless, they're just sitting there, but trees reproduce and they make whole forests and they keep going. In this image, which is the body of Jesus, a pyramid, or is it to be a tree that just keeps giving life? You see trees all the way in the Bible, the tree of life at the beginning, the tree of life at the end, the tree of death, the cross, right in the middle, which is actually the life-giving tree. And what did Jesus do? He went down the seed that gave himself up. So literally, Jesus had every right to be Pharaoh. And what does he do? He comes down to the lowest point in the lowest place of any human ever, and he gives his life, and from that comes a tree. And it was born. The church was born, yeah. and it grows. And we are called to, to give life and push life out and to bear fruit that will then again seed itself and grow more trees and more fruit. And yet what the tragedy is, is we become like Bobby Knight. We get leaders in the church, get their own egos involved. Um, you, you know, you even saw this if you've had the chance to see the, the Jesus Revolution. Anybody get to see it? Yeah. Amazing film. Yep. But you saw this same work in the heart of Lonnie, didn't you? Yep. Key scene where he says to Chuck, God's using me not you. That's the moment he went from I thank my God to I am God. Yeah, it's true. And we all, I don't care how long you've been known Jesus, you can, you can start to think of yourself more highly. That's why the Bible says don't think of yourself more highly than you should. So it's, it's really this concept that, that as leadership we are to get down to see people up and launched and pushed out. And you can't do that if you see people as the problem. That's right. You can't do that if you don't have an amazing attitude of gratitude. If you don't have an, just your, your whole life is thankful for people. If you're, if you're viewing them as the problem, then guess what you do? You assert yourself and you try to start to control. And as soon as you try to control, you become a Bobby Knight. You become a pharaoh. You become tragically what, what, what so many pastors become. So Paul in Romans chapter one, verse eight, just so you guys know, I'm not making this up. First of all, first, foremost, foundationally, first thing I want to talk about, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. First Corinthians one, four, by the way, Jonathan's already said this, but the Corinthian church was the most dysfunctional church in the New Testament by far. The stuff going on there, it was like church gone wild, okay? Here's, here's, here's Paul for the crazy church. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. 
Philippians 1, 3 and 4, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you are, are making my prayer with joy. Colossians 1, 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. You know, it hits me, the, the word always there. It means Paul always, all the time. Yeah. When he was praying for these churches, it's thanking him and praising him. And, and it's like, honestly, you know what it's like as a pastor. It's so easy to go to focus on the issues Absolutely. and the problems. Yep. And to start there, if you think about this, what you start in the closet, which is praising God for people, if you start there, guess what happens when you meet that person? You see your countenance is 100% altered. Whereas if you start complaining in your closet, God, this person's a, a pestness, what do you do something about him? And then you see him, your countenance is going to be different. So the fact that we are thanking God for somebody in private actually alters the way we treat them and see them. And it right. changes the way we do community. And you know what it's like, all of us do, how to put on some fake love, right? You see somebody, you don't love them, you don't like them, but by golly, I'm a Christian, so let's fake it for a few minutes, right? Yeah. And, and so we fake it, and then when, they, when they're gone, we go, you know how to know you're faking it, when you go, when they leave. That is a 100% sign that you faked everything that you just showed to them. And this is not a book about faking it. And so Paul knew, and, and somehow intuitively or from walking with Jesus, that you start off with gratitude. And then while you're interacting with God and praying and thanking, he does something in your heart where he infuses a supernatural and true love. And let me say this, in a true enjoyment and like for people. That's right. Yeah, and that's what's key. You can't love somebody without enjoying them. Now, just think about this for a second. Take my wife out, 22-year wedding anniversary coming out. We're having a good time. She goes, man, this is, this is great, Ryan. It's so good being together. And I say, yeah, totally. I love you. This is, this is awesome. And I say, are you having a good time? She goes, I'm having a great time. She goes, what? are you having a good time? I'm, yeah, I'm tolerating it. But we, pull that, we would never pull that on our spouse. But I would say we have a relational, artificial harmony at times that we pull on one another. Mm -hmm. And Paul's saying relational gratitude is central in the life of prayer. Mm -hmm. it's, it's where prayer starts. Question for you, and I'll answer my own question, but I want you to think about it. Have you ever had a time where you've seen God transform your heart towards somebody because you started praying for them. And I'll answer first, because this was unscripted, but there was a guy that was a known narcissist. He could take any situation, make it about him. And he was mean, condescending. He made everyone else feel little because he wanted to feel big. And I just started praying for him. I just started saying, God, I, I thank you for this guy. I thank you for that I get to have a meeting with him today. And I thank you that he's gonna spit venom at me because it's an opportunity for the gospel. I thank you that I get an opportunity to love those who hate me. 
I thank you that I get to pray for my enemies. Jesus, you taught me to do it. Awesome, I get an opportunity. I get to go in the lab. And what I found out from this guy was that at five years old, he was 50 something at this time. When he was five years old, he told me of a horrific thing that happened to him as a kid. And he opened up his heart. And what I ended up seeing is that this guy that was powerful in the boardroom, this guy that was powerful using pharaohing people was simply just a scared little boy. Mm-hmm. He was a five-year-old emotionally and relationally. And it was like, I would never be mad at a five-year-old for saying, mine! Now I discipline him and give him a spanking. <laughs> but I'd never be mad at him. And God gave me a heart for this guy and I was able to see him through the eyes of, of Christ. What about you? You know, I mean, to go back when I was in college, I by default ended up leading the Christian group on campus. And there was a girl in there that, um, quite frankly, everything about her graded me the wrong way. You guys have known that. And it was just the way she laughed, just the way, wow. and, she, and she laughed. You're, you hated her laugh, that's. Well, it was, it was her laugh was, it was something, it was, it was a laugh of insecurity. And for some reason, I was in a stage where I just didn't tolerate insecurity. I was. Your own insecurity couldn't handle her insecurity. It, it, it's yeah. true. It's true. <laughs> you hypocrite. Yeah. It's true. And God teaches you about your own hypocrisy. And I, I, I just remember everything about this girl just graded on me. And, and it was like she was in, in the, the group. We had like 34, 35. But the first, there was like five of us believers. It grew to like 35, 36. But I remember whenever I'd go in the room with her, there would just be this spirit of, I hate to say this, but I was, I was, it was just repulsed by her. And I would go in and I would fake loving her. It was purely fake. I mean, don't you feel loved by somebody who doesn't like you? Honestly. <laughs> Some of you, I mean, you can't. Pause real quick. I'll give, get back to your story. But I heard something really interesting this week. A seminary professor was working with all of his MDiv students, these theology nerds, and he asked them, how many of you guys believe God loves you? Every, every kid raises their hand and he says, how many of you guys think God likes you? And more than half the kids' hands went down. Wow. Powerful. Keep going. No, it's, it's true. And I, I remember going back to my room, and, and I had tried to love her in every way, and it didn't work. And I went back, and, and I just, I wish it had started with Thanksgiving, but it did turn to Thanksgiving. I just fell on my knees and said, God, I can't love this person. I just, everything inside of me says no. And it was like God spoke to me, not audibly, but he spoke to my spirit and says, well, I'm glad you're finally admitting it. Says now let me love her. It's amazing because I go, I go back for two reasons. I'm getting choked up. One is I really loved her after that. It wasn't me. It was I, I could see her through God's eyes. And I found out, you know, years later, I, I've been all over the world. She died in her forties, and she wow. died from multiple issues. She had been so abused growing up. I found out later. I never knew that. All I was seeing is an exterior and letting that repulse me. Gosh, how immature. When here was a person who needed someone to be grateful for her, someone to to embrace her brokenness and to say, I can enjoy you anyway. 
And that's not who I was. And I praise God that the last six months or so of my time at that school, that he gave me his love. He allowed me, and this is what I pray now because I see how God's done that, not just in that instance and other instances. I say, God, you enjoy this person. I don't yet. Show me through your eyes what you enjoy. And do you know what happens? I enjoy that person. I see it. And they're really cool. They're really, and it, and it creates a, a grateful spirit. It creates a, a, a spirit. I mean, a real, and I, I think that was Paul's secret, is he actually learned, I mean, he did, to, to know the love of God for somebody, to see them through yes, his eyes. That's right. And to enjoy them through the same eyes that Jesus enjoyed. I go, Jesus, hang out with sinners. Did he just sit there and tolerate them and do this the whole time? Or did he enjoy them? Because they kept having him back. And usually you don't invite somebody back who just crosses their arm and frowns at you the whole time. That's right. And so there was something that Jesus saw in the tax gathered sinners that he enjoyed and he allowed himself to enjoy that piece. That's right. Even though the other pieces that I'm sure that just broke his heart. Ron Rollheiser says this, he says, to be saints is to be motivated by gratitude, nothing more and nothing less. Scripture everywhere and always makes this point. For example, the sin of Adam and Eve was first and foremost a failure of reps, receptivity of gratitude. God gives them life, gives them each other, gives them the garden, and only asks them to receive it properly in gratitude, receive it and give thanks. Only after doing this do we go on a to break and share, before else we first give thanks. To receive in gratitude, to be properly grateful is the most primary of all religious attitudes. Wow. Proper gratitude is ultimate virtue. It defines sanctity. Saints, holy persons, are people who are grateful, people who see and receive everything as a gift. Chesterton one time famously said, to be, uh, to be grateful for even an ugly weed. I got multiple Chesterton quotes, sorry, uh, Gretchen. I'm grateful for you too, following me. Uh, Chesterton said, to be grateful for even an ugly weed is to feel totally unworthy of even an ugly weed. He says this, and this is the quote on the screen, I would maintain that thanks are the highest form of thought and that gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. Wow. You know, Francis Schaeffer said a similar thing that I can't ever get out of my mind. He says, your spirituality at any given moment can be determined by the degree to which you're thankful. And I go, whoa, isn't that true? The opposite of thankfulness and gratitude is entitlement. I deserve better. And don't you love to be around those people? We like to be them, but it's not, they're not. And so this spirit of gratitude is, is, is supernatural. And what it does is it dethrones us from playing God in, in a spirit of entitlement, I deserve better. And it, it puts us at the feet of Jesus and say, God, thank you for the people you give me. Um, and you know, the whole idea, you were talking about saints, saints. Yeah, that's the other part of this. 
Before Paul starts with, I give thanks for you, he gives them an identity. Mm. He gives this identity to every church and he calls them saints. And so if we stopped seeing each other as inconveniences. Or sinners. Or sinners or annoyances. Or that guy's a little loud and obnoxious. Or that person's a little passive. Or that person didn't say hi to me. What, if, what would happen in our church if two things happened? If we saw one another as saints in this bride of Christ, and what would happen if we started giving thanks for one another, not face-to-face primarily, but like you said, in the closet, in, in our alone? What would happen in marriages if spouses started giving thanks for one another? What would happen with our children that are maybe a little annoying sometimes if we started giving thanks? What kinds of things would happen in a church like that? You know, I think, again, this concept of saints. Paul saw what God was making them to be. For I'm convinced of this very thing, he said, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it in the day of Jesus Christ. And so Paul sees that. He doesn't even focus on where they're at or where they came from. You sinner, you continued sinner. No, it's you are becoming this, and that is what I am grateful for. I embrace you for that. That's pretty incredible. We start seeing people, again, not as obstacles in our way, not as something that needs to be controlled, but someone who God is doing an amazing thing in, and that just creates a, a gratitude. Yeah. Six things I tracked that Paul was thankful for. I'll just fly through these. Paul was thankful for other believers' faith in the Lord Jesus. Mm. He saw faith in people and called it and spoke life. Paul was thankful, says in Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, he was thankful for the love that people had for other believers. Do you find people that are loving others and do you just go, I'm so thankful for that? Mm-hmm. Just this week I was thinking of Danny who was up here singing earlier. I was thinking of the way she's loving young moms. Every Tuesday they get together. And she started a young moms group because she realized that's a very vulnerable time for new moms. And they're taking care of each other. They're loving each other. You know, I was just, just started our small group out there where we're at and Lou is in the group and um, he, he heads up the cold shelter for the um, cold weather shelter. Cold weather shelter. And he's praying that God would really provide. But Lou Blanchard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Lou. We, we stopped and, and uh, and prayed for Lou, and when I was done, when we were done praying, he was, he, was, he was in tears for the people who are out here in the woods. Wow. And to me, it's just like, that's somebody who loves yeah. people. And that's, you need to be around those people. Yeah. Because it's like, okay, here's somebody who really loves. Yes. And I want to be around to, to learn and to, and to have yeah. that spirit of love. And it's, it's amazing how we're going to get to even in the future here, partner and and work with those who are living out there, families who are living out there who just can't, can't afford to be in here. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah, two other women I was thinking of in our church this week was Lucy Moore and Sandy Bow. And I had a meeting with them this week and their hearts for people that can't make it here, that are stuck at home because of health reasons. They have a list and they're figuring out how do we engage and love the people that are homebound. Really powerful stuff. Yeah, it is. Paul was thankful, number three, for 
people's steadfastness in the gospel. Paul was thankful for other people's spiritual gifts. Paul wasn't threatened by people that had gifts. He loved it, he encouraged it. Do we look at the gifts of those around us and go, we want a fan into flame. You guys hear uh, three weeks ago when a young youth pastor named Dustin preached? He wasn't bad. He said, he's coming for my job. I said, that's fine, I'm coming for Steve's. It's, it's all good. <laughs> it's just, all, it's all good, man. Um, but do we see the gifting of others and go, we wanna fan that into flame. We see this gifting, we wanna stir this person up or, or are we threatened by the gifts of others? Paul was thankful for the partnership in the gospel. And I just wanna say to this church, mm. you guys are amazing at partnering. True. When, it, when we said, hey, these guys are going to Turkey, we've known for about a day and a half. If anyone wanna give anything, boom, the church responds. You guys want to see the gospel go out, mm. well done. Paul was also thankful for the history and the, and the rootedness and the mutual affection the church had for one another. So what do you wanna say? What's your final plea, Jonathan? What do you see? What's, how does this inform our church? Well, just for me personally, I, I can't get over what God's doing in this church. And I don't have to just start with Thanksgiving. It really is a, just a natural overflow for what God is doing in and through all of you, even when we were in our small group, hearing what everybody was involved with and their love and their <coughs> desire to see their neighbors reached for Jesus and to see this community touched in a significant way. There is a, um, it just, it does, it floors me. It causes me to constantly be thankful. I, um, I brag about you guys <laughs> around the world saying there's this church that I'm a part of and it's so exciting. And I, and I would even say that um, one of the things as elders that, that we've decided, I mean, this is, we need to become the community as a group of elders that we're asking people to be. And I would say this, there's probably no more joyful time of the week than to be praying with, laughing with, um, arguing with, debating with, wrestling with the elders in this church. And so I just want to say to all of the elders, I'm so grateful to be a part of that team. And, and that's huge. Um, I'm amazed what God's doing in our hearts and how he, he really has created a spirit of, um, not of an elder board, but as a, as I say, a band of brothers. Yeah, a and ministry that's the way we're team. Feeling. Yeah. yeah. So if you're here this morning and you don't feel relational gratitude, because maybe you're in a hard marriage, mm -hmm. maybe you're in a terrible work environment, maybe you have a narcissistic, emotionally abusive, or emotionally displaced leader in your life, what's the way forward? And so I wanna come full circle and say, the gospel is the way forward. Our relational gratitude is an echo of the real relational reality, which is Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than a man lay down a life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I no longer call you servants, Pharaoh. For the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I now call you 
friends. Wow. So our friendships, our gratefulness for one another, our seeing one another, thanking God for one another, and then speaking that in. The power of the tongue is life and death. Paul says, or sorry, James says, I don't hold to a Paul authorship of James. That was a slip. James <laughs> says, with our tongue, we, we, we bless God and we curse men. My brothers and sisters, this ought not be. And so what would happen if we really got into the closet and we started thanking God for one another? You know how that would change our relationships? Mm. You know how that would change the people that you have a problem with or you're a little annoyed by? You know how that would change the community of faith? It would become a compelling case study for a world that needs a better alternative. The secular life script is failing. Will the church be ready? And so the gospel's the way forward. If you can't accept the friendship of Jesus, you're not gonna become the great companion. And so here's the prayer that uh, I, I uh, found that I, I wanted to read over this as we close this morning. He's, this is from an author named Scotty Smith, and he says this in prayer. He says, Father, all my weather friends turn my heart heavenward. These friends, they simply remind me that the foundation and fountain of all good friendship is found in the gospel. It's overwhelming, settling, and centering to hear Jesus say to us, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. Indeed, Jesus is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. What wondrous love is this, indeed. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. Hallelujah, what a salvation. Hallelujah, what a savior. So every amen I pray in Jesus' most glorious and gracious name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this encourages you to dive deeper into your relationship with God through prayer, scripture, worship, and community. We hope you can join us on Sunday mornings at 9.30. For more information, go to sisterschurch.com. Be blessed, friends.